Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm going to introduce you straight away to Rika. Welcome to Publish Not Rika. Thank you very much, Jen. And Rika's father's George. Hello there. Uh, Rika Caponet is a young author with very complex ideas. But we're going to start with the setting of her book, Dawn of the Guardian. Rika, where did you set it? Well, the book is set in Andalusia, which is in Spain, uh, in the south of Spain, in a small town called Arcos de la Frontera. Right. Now, I've learned from your book that there is a hill, La Atalaya? Yes, that's correct. What's at the top of this hill? Uh, a mansion, a mansion on the cliff. It's a Roman ruin of a mansion. Yes, the Roman ruins are below the mansion, just below it. And uh, the mansion looks down on um, uh, across de la Frontera and you call it whitewashed buildings. It's rotting posture evoking an almost eerie pre preternatural feel to it. Now I had to look up preternatural. <laughs> I really did. I thought, now what does preternatural and it means paranor- paranormal or supernatural. Yeah. Is that how you, you describe this story? Yeah, well it's sort of this fantasy fiction adventure novel and yeah, there are some supernatural themes throughout the book but yeah, otherwise it's also got some down to earth Down to earth. Yes, yeah. it has, because there's a young man who's working as an anthropologist in this area. And wow, well, well, this is where. Well, who does he meet at the Pomegranate Festival? <laughs> he meets a young woman, a blind young woman named Irene. Okay, that sounds all pretty normal. But <laughs> then, then a giant, I'm quoting from Rika's book, a giant jet black eagle swayed before him, its regal glide, gilded feathers rippling in the breeze. The eagle opened its eyes to reveal an inferno of golden light streaming from its pupils. The young man's focus was captured by the eagle's beating wings and what, what looked like hundreds of of tiny glass casings attached to each feather, each one holding a wispy grey liquid. <laughs> oh, Rika, what was in this liquid? Uh, it's this sort of this gas that can uh, that renders people unconscious and uh, <laughs> then projects these nightmares upon them. And it also helps with their telepathy, from people to people telepathy. But this young man, he's got telepathy with something else. What's that? The dog. <laughs> he can talk to that dog. Right. Uh, yes, that, sort of this old, the, um, the young man, this, he goes, yes, on this journey of being able to talk, uh, being able to te- communicate telepathically with the dog. But before the young man can do so, he has to go on this journey of, of understanding and, and self-discovery almost. Mm. So this is where uh, Rika's book takes us on a different tangent and it's the dog story and who's the dog the dog is fuko and he's this cross of a patterdale terrier ah 
written with a lot of affection, I think, about <laughs> this dog. So who was who was Foucault friendly with? Um, well, he has he has his dog family, dog I family. suppose, in the book. Yes, we have Bongo, Marcia, and Lulu, and they are also dogs, of course. But, but he also has uh, a horse friend and yes. a cat friend and an otter friend. I thought that, you know, Alejandro the otter was quite interesting. <laughs> and you know that they're good because together they rescue a kitten. So you, you know that, you know, these dogs got to be good. In contrast, and, and oh, we also know that uh, if, if we didn't know prior to this that Foucault was a good dog, Foucault is also spoken to by the Golden Shepherd in a tolling voice. You are the guardian. You have the gift. You are of the dream. Hear this, young one, and remember me. So we know that there's all these goodies in the book. So, and we know that uh, Foucault has been made the, the guardian. Yeah. So who are the baddies? Well, well sort of, I'm not sure if I would class them as baddies, but they're sort of... <laughs> they're pretty mean. <laughs> so, yes, but they're sort of, uh, they're, they're these souls that have been led down this this sort of tormented path and that has sort of, they've, they've lost the, the sense of who they really are along the way. And we have, um, well, one, one of these characters is Erasmus. And then we have this main, the main sort of antagonist is Dominus Tantibus. And... These, well, these lost souls have also got some rather um, oh, unfair dog friends. Now, first of all, we have Erasmus. He had dogs too. He had, just quoting, two blue-eyed chihuahuas and one menacing midnight black rottweiler. Chihuahuas gave all three dogs, now this is when they met, the good dogs. The chihuahuas gave all three dogs a long, mean glare before beginning a yap in comically high, squeaky voices. Clear the way for the almighty, the one the one and only El Jeff. El Jefe. El Jefe. <laughs> King yes. of the Hill. And El Jefe sneered at Foucault and his friends. All of you will lower your tails, lick my paw, and then scurry along your way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So they're the dogs of uh, Erasmus. Yeah, they're sort of yeah, they're his sort of servants, I suppose. And uh, at the beginning, yes, they're not very friendly with Foucault and his family, but uh, the relationship does evolve along the way of the book. And then the biggest, oh, well, lost soul of all, I'd call him the, the biggest baddie, <laughs> is Dominus Tantibus. Yes, Dominus Tantibus, that's right, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so he's sort of this ancient figure from a time long past on Earth and he's now returning uh, with... <laughs> and he's not very... Well, he's he's there to sort of not really take... No, he's not there to take over the world, but he wants to, to inflict his own nightmares upon the human race. And that's the translation of Dominus Tantibus? Is the Lord of Nightmares. Mm. Yes. Well, we, before we get into too much of him, I'd like you to read something from the book now about his demon dogs. <laughs> okay. Two large bodies stepped out into the light. They looked like wolves with their long, pointed snouts and short cut ears, but that is where the resemblance ended. 
The rest was a warped, twisted framework of flesh. Their fur was a matted, dark grey and tangled together in large chunks. In places where fur didn't cover their bodies, Foucault could see long black strips of veins submerged sickeningly with protruding bones. Their paws held razor-edged silver spikes instead of nails that squelched into the ground with each step they took. Their faces were horrendously deformed, grisly with scars, some old, some new, but all dripping with the same gruesome yellow pus. The right cheek was branded with a black mark of a smoky quartz crystal that hideously oozed blood continuously. Their eyes lost the colour in their dark, allowing them to stay invisible when hunting prey, but in the light they transformed and glowed crimson red. In their muzzles they gripped Marcia and El Jefe as prisoners, clenching them from the scruff of their necks. The horrified look in El Jefe's eyes told Foucault that these monsters were the demon dogs. Oh, <laughs> you wouldn't like to tangle with those, would you, David? I think I'd uh, give them a miss somehow, <laughs> yes. Well, you know, how is humanity going to prevail? And you've given us other things just apart from the Guardian, Foucault. We've got bell we've got a winged horse and a golden shepherd and um and i like this you know of the five elders were coming um yeah so it's yeah there's there's the 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 realistic story there's also the um sort of mythi- mythological background to it all but i want to go off on a tangent here mm-hmm. because uh what struck my my attention or got my attention a bit in the bio world schooling i'm trying to establish where you got some of these ideas from and such like but uh the, the term world schooling is mentioned because you're not you haven't gone to a conventional school no, what's happened well i have but until grade two right so, yes and the world schooling then is what well, it's sort of this way that you learn where you learn from the light, the experiences of the light of the world around you, sort of the life that we've been living, travelling around the world for, for four years now and sort of learning from the experiences we have, the people we meet, the cultures we encounter. That's sort of what world schooling means to us. Right. So then why did you set this story in Spain? Was there a particular affinity you had with Spain when you got there? Or? Yeah, I mean, that is where I was sort of had got the idea. We did travel there um, back in 2012, we came across from Morocco and we spent a couple of days there in Andalusia in this Arcos de la Frontera town. And, yeah, so that's where the inspiration came to write the novel. Right. Okay. But then this sort of gets into the notion of, well, the writing process. What fascinated you about writing or how did you get involved in, in that sort of... Um, well, what was the inspiration therefore? Yeah, well, I mean, I've always loved writing and reading since I was a very young age. Um, before we left Australia on travelling, I was always entering sort of short stories in library competitions or reading continuously. And uh, so when we left, I started doing these sort of travel updates. That's how this sort of has evolved into my travel blog, mm-hmm. uh, Dreamtime Traveller. So, yes, I've always been writing. And, uh, and so after sort of these writing sort of about real life experiences um sort of got the idea sort of to do something not really real life but sort of this fantastical sort of approach to to writing creative writing which has always been a favorite of mine and so yeah sort of pulled it together to to create a book so you you've gone down this path of writing then but writing in itself is not simply putting something on paper and it 
comes out necessarily. Mm. I mean, well, with the age of the internet, I guess you can do it as a as a as a blog and such like. But with a story like right. this, there's a whole writing process involved. So how did you manage that? I mean, there's that moment of inspiration when you write, mm. but it takes. Ten times as long to go through the rest of the process. Absolutely. What was, what was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, the inspiration is definitely the easiest part mm. because then afterwards uh, you have to sit down and actually write it. So um, for me, when I began, I sort of didn't have any sort of plan. I sort of just started writing. I was like, oh, I'll write a chapter every day, but it doesn't work like that. Um, sort of you have to allow time for this the, for sort of because... I was writing every day. I wanted to write almost a chapter a day or something. And uh, I realised after a time that I wanted to be spontaneous when writing. And uh, it didn't work like that. So what what you have to do is sort of step back and also sort of have this this structured character, sort of this arc that you can follow. And I didn't have that in the beginning. So it was after a while when I finally realised that this wasn't really working, I I took a step back and looked at the favourite books I liked to read. And I realised they had this really well planned out uh, arc and I was like well I need something like that absolutely so yes I, I, I put it all down on paper and from there sort of I kept I got from chapter to chapter and I that was the way I managed to get everything pulled together because there isn't a linear narrative no. well there is a linear narrative well, yeah. but with that arc you've then had to put in uh, a change of time sequence, uh, the mythological yes, world, yes. the realistic world. How did you cope with that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a bit confusing at times when you want to add all these different ideas together. But, um, I mean, I've drawn sort of inspiration from other books who have done sort of this, followed down that line of sort of these mystical backstories or something like that. And uh, when when you've read sort of, when I've read so much, uh, it was it was easier than sort of starting out with without anything. Mm. Um, and then, um, well, you've also got the self-publishing yes. path that you've gone down. Mm-hmm. Um, what's been involved in in that? Yeah, well, it's. Um, I mean, at first, our initial idea was we wanted to do uh, sort of follow go you're down that traditional publishing, and we sent out hundreds and hundreds of letters, as I'm sure so many uh, aspiring authors have. And yes, so that comes with rejection, but that also comes with. We also got quite a few uh, sort of positive feedback, and there was one in print that sort of validated the fact that this book was that was a, it was a good book, and it had good. It, it was quality so how did you just just to interrupt there how did you cope then with those rejections (laughs) yeah I mean at times I mean it wasn't so at times it wasn't easy but you sort of just got to let that roll off I mean you can't really let that uh, sort of affect you because I mean today so many authors want to get published there are so many books out there that want to get published and so yeah, you have to cope with that, but it, it's fine. And then, uh, so we met. We had this one imprint who actually said, "Yes, we'd we'd love we would love to publish it, but um, you would have to do your own marketing." Mm. And we thought, well, if we would have to do our own marketing, and everything we can we can sort of do that ourselves. And with things like Amazon out there and Kindle, and um, that also allows you to have paperback copies as well. We thought, well, this would probably be the the, the route to go down on, and then maybe afterwards, sort of look at uh, acquiring an agent after it's been published or something like yeah, something like that. So you have a long term process in mind in terms of this continuing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've definitely thought about perhaps a sequel or, or even turning it into a trilogy. So Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm. But here we go then. Um, the audience for this, because there's a, there's a bit of bleakness uh, <laughs> in this, this dominating nightmare. Yeah. Um, who, what, what age group do you think you're aiming for there? This is then? sort of uh, 12 and up. This, this age group, yes. Right. Yeah. So they'd connect with the animals, but yes. Um, I mean, because I mean, yeah, because it has uh, sort of things in there for for younger children or sort of twelve and, and older sort of teenagers, but also a lot of elements that for, for adults as well. So. Mm. Well, that yeah. that that is what then that interests me. That notion of what the adults might get out of it, because mm-hmm. there's a sort of philosophy. I don't know whether the twelve-year-olds would perhaps manage that as equally well. Um, so centering the book or finding the right audience and and pitching it is, right. is a challenge. I mean, yeah, because it, it still is, despite all these like you know, as you said, complex sort of. Th- theories in there it is still a, a fantasy adventure novel and um we have the, the very the thing that i thought would be very important is there's this element in there of solving conflict without violence and today when we have all these all in everything almost we have this deus ex machina type thing where everything is solved with violence almost at the end this one act of violence can sort of pull whole, the whole plot together and so I was very mindful when writing this because what I want to convey to those other young children out there who might read the, who will probably read the book is that um, you can that forgiveness and because that's what Foucault does he goes on this journey from from fear and conflict to, to sort of forgiveness and understanding and that's a very important message that I think young children today should hear indeed Jan. Okay. Now, look, um, there are a few things that surprised me in reading this book. I I suppose with Julie and the horse, you know, doing the cart work and everything, uh, in my mind, it's sort of set back you know, in, in the future. But that we have the the laptop, you know, sort of singling out emails and yeah. the, the keypad and things like this. Yeah, and because, well, sort of Arcos de la Frontera is sort of this set in sort of almost the middle of nowhere Spain. So we still have, it's this very agricultural place where you have still farming and fields and hence like the cart work and horses and that sort of thing. But yeah, so it's also a town with sort of modern day technology in, incorporated. So. Right. Right. Now, back to the believable, right? <laughs> um, you named one of these chihuahuas that I read about, these little snappy, yappy <laughs> chihuahuas, after your brother. And he started out being a baddie. Actually, yeah, I mean, it is based off sort of, yeah, because these twins, are, well, these chihuahuas are twins, but um, they're named Rene and Pepe. But that's, yeah, so they're, they're different names from my brother and I, mm. but they are sort of based off this twin relationship we see throughout the book. And, um, yeah, baddie maybe, but they're sort of more being forced into that situation and in the end they they try to they do try to sort of get out of there and um they they sort of they join with Foucault and they they cooperate with him and together yeah they they sort of end up turning on the the baddies I suppose there's a bit of humor the dog humor (laughs) through this book too isn't there (laughs) yes I mean I did I did sort of see as it still is for sort of 12 and up I did want to still have the light-hearted element in and, there. And there's even a little bit of element of Australia in there when the, when the, there's the fire and um, it, the fire burnt the kangaroo cartoons. 
Yeah, I know. Uh, that's in there. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because when I was writing, I definitely I drew on inspiration from everywhere, all our travels and, of course, back here, home, Australia. So there's a lot of <laughs> elements from all around the world. Right. Just a bit of subtlety. You know, some of the writing was incredible. We talked about um, Dominus Tandibus being the um, dominating nightmare. Yes. And what he wants to do, and this is another quote from Rika um, uh, Kone's book. Enslaved souls for eternity was the punishment created by the ancient lord of nightmares, Dominus Tantibus, designed so that once the earthly makeup of the body broke down and the soul was ready to return to its windborne form, it would be caught by the cage mid-flight, imprisoned in the darkest depths of consciousness held down with a bar of lightning chains and left to scream for eternity. <laughs> yes, this is sort of, this is Dominus Tantibus's sort of what happens to him because he is, yeah, he is the most tormented soul in this book, as we've said. And, um, he, yeah, so he goes down this troubled path that, uh, that Earth, and because of this, Earth sees a lot of destruction. And from this, sort of, this is what he's led himself to. That is his. Uh, that is what happens to him before he dis- before he regains his his sort of crystalline form. It's a, a bleak vision in many ways. Yeah. Uh, how do you account for that in, in your thinking? I mean, what led you to that sort of darkness? Well, I mean, a lot of it is from imagination, sort of. Um, I've drawn on a lot of inspiration from other books out there today. And, yeah, sort of, I mean, it is, yeah, it is. I won't deny there is some darkness. There is definitely conflict in there. But it's how, that the main thing is how we can resolve it. Mm. I was just wondering, as a, as a child, did you ever suffer from nightmares? <laughs> Uh, no, not not as probably just a normal normal nightmares as everyone else. Normal nightmares, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a, or a dream, a more pleasant dream. Yeah, a dream. Because uh, that that isn't that is sort of we have the elements of nightmares, but mainly dreams in mm. there as well. So, Rika, in your acknowledgments, you say to your parents, "You have been my most avid supporters and harshest critics." on this long road to publication. So, George, do you think that's fair? <laughs> yeah, it is fair, I think, because um, uh, in, in one respect, we really um, were, wanted to encourage Reka as much as uh, we possibly could to, to do all of uh, the best that she can, but we also really wanted to, for it to be at a, at a standard that was acceptable you know, to, uh, to people who would be actually paying for this. So, yes, we had to be harsh, and um, when we were reading it, we were saying, oh, this really wouldn't work, and a lot of the times Rico said, but that has to be like that, and you know, we would get into these heated discussions. But, no, uh, no. Heat, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, I'm glad in the end that that was how I'm glad that you weren't sort of biased because I yeah I'm your daughter or something because yeah because uh, I think you definitely pushed me to do the best that I could but how do you handle that George how do you how do you uh, provide criticism to your child well it's it's been as as like I said we've been traveling the world for the last four years and we've been um, in each other's company you know 24 7 uh, for the last four years over 30 countries six continents and you you, you maintain or you develop this um, interesting dynamic 
dynamic as people. And um, it's not just parent-child or child-parent. Um, you, you, what we've worked on is, is a relationship of equals and to be able to um, relate to each other very much on that level. So, But um, then, then to provide <clears throat> literary criticism because you're going to have to not just talk about style but structure and content – uh, how do you do that and still allow um, the what, what is a young author uh, still assert her own uh, identity or um, personality? Oh, indeed. Look, that that's throughout the book. Her own identity and personality is something we would never um, impin, impede on. But um, uh, you do it from the perspective of being a lover of reading books and, and you do it from that reality saying that, hold on, um, you know, if we really examine this, you ask the question and say, do you think as a reader you would actually like this? And, and at that point, you enable, you know, the person to take a step back and say, yes, maybe I'm a little too close to it. And and if I really think of it that way, um, then it might be. So it's it's much more of a, a mentoring sort of a, a role as opposed to a, a harsh critic. Sort have of you role. ever found that you've, you've had to sort of shut up and grin and, and bear it? Or? Absolutely. Uh, look, Rico's pretty, um, pretty solid on some things and she said, you will absolutely not change those things. And yeah, you have to respect that because she is the author and um, the way she wants to convey the story uh, has to be authentic. Mm. And I feel that in that respect, she's done a very good job. So what sort of things do you like reading? Oh, um, geez, I've I actually like a, a lot of things uh, that are non-fiction, actually. Mm. I, I do like um, the human story, the human narrative. Um, I, I, I love that aspect of who we are as people and where we're going. They're the types of things that have really captured my interest over the last few years. And um, it's sort of part of our journey, too, about what our story is and what our collective stories as human beings are. Right. Well, Jan, you were expecting a phone call, weren't you? <laughs> Sorry, no. We're, well, we're just going to... We're just going to have to keep going on, more on questions. this. questions. Well, what about you, Rika? What type of books do you read? Oh, I love all type of fantasy. Can, do you have a favourite author that you'd prefer um, to read? Well, I, absolutely, I love a bunch of books, but oh, it's pretty hard to choose. Uh, probably I love this one trilogy. It's called The School for Good and Evil. And the author of that is Soman Chainani. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love, I love, I also love um, sort of these, they take on a m sort of modern sort of different twist on sort of traditional fairy tales. And uh, another one like that is The Lunar Chronicles by Marissa Mayer. Oh, well done. Yes. So you are reading within that speculative yes, uh, yes, that's, fiction area. That is what sort of what um, that I, when I was sort of editing the book or looking back on, on my own, I was thinking sort of would would see because I love that sort of thing. And I was thinking that would would I as a reader would like to read this uh, as well. So, yeah. Well, Mia... Uh, I, as a reader, I got to the end of yours and I thought, oh, yes, there's there's definitely a next book in this one because we, there weren't a, a, there were some areas that weren't tied up. Right, So yes. we really hadn't come across that golden shepherd, had we? Or no. did I miss that? No, not, not exactly. We, we, no. haven't, we haven't learned all there is about him. Oh, Belle, all the winged horse. No. Yeah. But, so have you shaped this... Already in your thinking for yes. putting down on paper. Yeah, or? I do. I absolutely. I have idea. I have major ideas for for what I would want to continue with. Right. So yes. Well, I'm going to, if you don't mind, read. Finish off with one more reading from your Not book. Not at all. Thank you. And uh, this is where the placement is. 
A war is coming, one whose circumstances we have never seen before. It is not a battle of human against human, but one questioning our very existence and what we know to be real. An ancient adversary of the earth is manifesting itself and now with our humans adrift, it will be up to us to restore balance in the world. Us. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> us is the dogs. dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, at this point, the, the guardian, as Foucault is, he's, yes. Yeah, absolutely. If, if, God, uh, if dogs ever if do, needed... If dogs, dogs ruled dogs, the world. Yeah, or needed a man's best friend, we but, need... <laughs> but, but why pick on the chihuahuas? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that was just one dog. That There's was just one. Yeah. Look, do you um, own a chihuahua there, David? No, I, I actually know people that have chihuahuas. <laughs> we love chihuahuas. Like. It's not picky. <laughs> we didn't particularly But yeah, they were so good for the, yeah, for the, the, for the characterisation. Yeah, yeah. And dogs have personalities. Yeah. And, yeah. and the way I've incorporated the chihuahua is sort of almost the most personal one because it's like they're twins and so am mm. I. So, mm. yeah. Ah. Well, <laughs> Ricky Copenhagen, a very youthful writer, but as I said at the beginning, complex ideas has given us the dawn of the Guardian, which could be the first book in a, <laughs> a trilogy. Uh, published by Hoot Owl Books. And Jan, yes. we're going to have to get out of here. It's we twelve. Are. Thank you very much, Rika. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you to everyone. Thank you. Bye.